with a brief word of prayer before we get into the word this morning. Heavenly Father, as we come now to look into your word to see what you have for us today, help us to better understand um, this book, this letter, and what you have for us, even in these few verses that we'll look at this morning. Help us to understand these things and to apply them to our lives so that we can be better disciples as we seek to follow to follow you as we seek to be conformed to the image of Christ. Help us now uh, to understand your word. We pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So this morning we're going to look at just at um, Jude, and Jude is a short epistle. There's only one chapter, about 25 verses, and we're going to look at just the first four uh, verses this morning. So before we get too far into it, let's look at these four verses. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very di diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So those are the verses that we'll look at here this morning. But as we are starting a new book, we need to understand a little bit of the book itself. Who is the writer? What is going on that is causing him to write this letter? Well, who is Jude? Well, Jude is a shortened English version of Judas, which is a kind of a Greek form of Judah. So when we ask who is the author of this, as we do some looking, there's kind of three main options that present themselves to us. There is a Jude or a Judas that is mentioned as a leader in the early church in Jerusalem. And in Acts 15, verse 22, this Judas is sent along with Silas to accompany Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch with the letter from, from the Jerusalem council. This man's surname was Barsabbas, and he may have been related to Joseph Barsabbas, who was a nominee to replace Judas Iscariot as one of the twelve. We see that in, in Acts chapter 1. But there is not much evidence that indicates that this Judas is the author of the book. The second option is that he is an apostle. He is one of the original twelve that Jesus chose. Judas, the son of James, found in Luke's listing of the apostles, both, both in Luke 6 and Acts chapter 1. However, verse 17 of our letter seems to indicate that the author did not consider himself an apostle. So it seems unlikely that with such an important topic that this letter contains, that one of the original twelve would not use his apostolic authority. So we tend to rule him out. The other option is that this Jude was one of the half-brothers of Jesus, a son of Mary and Joseph. A big piece of this evidence is that he identifies himself as the brother of James, or a brother of James. 
This would be James the Lord's brother, as Paul records it in Galatians 1. He is a leader or the leader in the Jerusalem church, as he's referenced in Acts 12 and 15, and the author of the epistle of James. We know that before Jesus' death and resurrection, his brothers did not believe in him. John 7, 5 tells us this. In fact, though Jesus, they had thought that Jesus had lost his mind, according to Mark 3, both James and Jude are mentioned in the list of Jesus' brothers given in Matthew 13, 55, and the parallel, though, Mark 6. But after Jesus' resurrection, his family came to believe in him. Acts 1, verse 14 mentions that the apostles, the disciples, were gathered together in the upper room praying, including Mary, his, Mary the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They were part now of the disciples in the upper room. This Jude is likely the author of this letter. He may have been in some role of leadership in the Jerusalem church. We're not too sure. There's not much other reference outside of this letter of him in the New Testament. But who is he writing this letter to? Well, this is considered a general epistle because there's no specific a person or church location designated as the recipient of the letter. But the overall tone of the letter and a lot of the examples and illustrations he uses lends itself to be a very Jewish Christian letter. Um, so his audience may have been a very Jewish Christian audience, quite possibly uh, in Israel or those kind of scattered abroad in the area. Most believe this letter was written between 65 AD to 80 AD. The late 60s tends to be the general consensus of when this book was written. A lot believe that it was written after 2 Peter was written and sent out. Uh, so this may have been written around 67, 68, maybe a little bit later from there. But why is he writing this letter? The purpose of his writing it's a letter of warning. He's warning of apostasy and false teachers. It is thought that Jude was written after 2 Peter, almost as a follow-up to 2 Peter. 2 Peter warns of false teachers that would be coming to afflict the church, but Jude seems to be the alarm that false teachers are present. 2 Peter 2 says, they're coming, and Jude says, they're getting in, they're here. One source that I looked at this week counted 13 apparent quotes between 2 Peter and Jude. So Jude is tied very, very closely with 2 Peter. Well, let's get into our letter We'll start with looking at verses 1 and 2, where we see some foundational truths. Some foundational truths. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, a brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Verses 1 and 2 are part of the introduction, the, the salutation, the greeting. 
but here is where we find out who the author is, who the letter is intended for, and the general polite greeting to his readers. But his opening has more to it than that. We see first the primacy of Christ. Jude opens his letter by identifying himself first in the service of Jesus Christ. He refers to himself as a bond servant, a servant or slave of Christ. After living most of his life with Jesus and rejecting him before the crucifixion and resurrection, Jude now has placed his faith in Jesus and recognizes that that earthly tie of being a half-brother is ended. And he sees himself as a devoted servant. He uses the term that's translated bondservant. Often this is translated slave or just as a servant. And the word means slave or, or servant. But its use here is more than just a slave. It is used here as referring to a slave who is solely devoted and committed to another person, to their master or owner. It's more than just the direct ownership-slave relationship. They actually enjoy being with this master, with this owner. And so they are fully committed to this master. Jude is using this word to express his relationship to Jesus. Jesus is his master to whom Jude is solely committed to serving. He made serving Jesus his priority. Now tuck this information about servant and master away back in your mind. We're going to circle back to that a little bit later. So he first he, he leads, leads with the primacy of Christ as a servant of Jesus, but then he also mentions that his brother was James. This adds a little weight and some authority to his letter, as well as identifying himself to his readers. Jude only appears here by name outside those two or three verses where the children of Mary and Joseph are listed in the Gospels. Jude doesn't see himself as an apostle. As I mentioned before, down in verse 17, he refers to the apostles that warned of this beforehand. He doesn't seem to include himself there. And there's no place in the New Testament where he is referred to as an apostle. So what authority did he have in the church? Well, we don't know. He may have been some form of leadership within the Jerusalem church working with James, but he doesn't lean on his own credentials. He identifies himself as James's brother. See, he may not have had a rather high level of leadership, but James was known. And the book of James, the letter of James, was certainly written a number of years before this one was. So it would be easy to tie himself there. But notice that being James's brother was secondary to being a servant of Jesus Christ. Even James refers to himself as a servant of Jesus. I should pick up my kids and have them quote James 1.1, but I won't do that right now. So we also see in his greeting, we see some salvation truths, some salvation truths. As Jude continues to address his leaders, he shows the glorious truths of salvation. 
Jude is addressing those who are called. Those who are called. Though it's not expressed, God is the one who is calling, who has done the calling. And this calling refers to salvation. Now, we need to not let the English word limit us in what we're understanding here. This isn't a call as a mere polite invitation from God to, for believers to be his own. No, this is the referring to the powerful, effectual call of God that will inevitably bring one called to faith in Jesus Christ. To those who are called. One author comments here, the call of God is extended only to some and is always successful so that all those who are called become believers. But Jude doesn't just refer to his readers as called. He expands this description with a pair of participles. We won't get too much into the, into the grammar here, but he uses a pair of participles to further describe this. Now, the King James and New King James reads, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. The stronger manuscript reading actually has a different word than sanctified. Um, it uses the word beloved. And I think that's the better reading. And the be So this would read beloved by God by God the Father instead of beloved in God the Father, or sanctified. So sanctified by is all right, but it's, it's, there, there's, some, there's some fluctuation there on whether it's sanctified or beloved. I think beloved is the better word, and the better way of relating that is beloved by God the Father. Some translations will say beloved in God the Father. God loved and called in his love, those who, he, those who he would elect, those he called and set apart to salvation. The other expanding description here should be read as kept by Jesus Christ. Preserved is a totally fine way of translating that word, but preserved in some translations will say kept for. And without getting too deep into the grammatical weeds, this is a dative of agency. So by is a better translation, but that preposition there has to be supplied no matter what we do with it because it's not there. But the idea is kept by Jesus Christ. But no matter what way that is translated, the idea of the phrase is the eternal security of the believer, preserved in Jesus Christ, kept by Jesus Christ. Jude has reminded his readers of the truths of salvation, just the same as Paul in the passage we read this morning. You were called and elected by God the Father for salvation and kept by Jesus, for Jesus, or in Jesus. And, you're, and, as we read this morning, um, sealed by the Holy Spirit. Paul also references in Romans 8, 28, very, 28 and through 30, a similar theme. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Jude is laying out that same theme of calling, loved, and salvation, and eternal security and glorification that Paul is laying out. And in verse 2, we see some blessings from God. Jude then moves from the opening greetings uh, to a, a prayer for divine blessing to be multiplied on his readers. Mercy and peace are common or were common Jewish greetings, but the addition of love here makes this greeting distinctively Christian. This is the only place in the New Testament where all three of these qualities appear so closely together. Often grace and peace are used in a lot of these openings, but this is really the only place where we find mercy, peace, and love. Now, grace is found in most of these, but this is the only place where he links these three together, where these three are linked together like this. His prayer was that his readers would have mercy from God to resist the apostate intruders, as well as offering mercy to those who would become captivated by their teaching, verses 22 and 23. The false teachers would be divisive, creating strife, verses 10 and 16. So peace would be needed. And Jude's readers would need love as these false teachers cared only for themselves and abused the purpose of the love feast in verse 12. During this stressful time of false teachers wreaking havoc, these qualities would be needed in abundance for the believers. And only God could supply these virtues in the lives of these believers. And so he prays for that in abundance, that these be multiplied to you. Jude now turns from the greeting to the purpose of his writing the letter, down in verse 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation ungodly men who turn, from the, who turn the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So in verses 3 and 4, we see the warning. The warning. At the beginning of verse 3, we get his original intent. Jude says that he had originally intended to write about the common salvation. Now, this is not a low view of salvation through Jesus Christ. I think his initial greeting showed that he had a good understanding and a very high view of the doctrine of salvation. Common here refers to the idea of a shared, our common salvation, our shared salvation. Common, as in communal, is kind of the idea here. Now, we have no idea what this letter would have looked like. Maybe it would have been similar to Paul in Romans, 
Or since this is a strong, there's a strong Jewish tone to the letter, maybe it would have been more like James or Peter or even the book of Hebrews. We don't know because the Holy Spirit had other plans for Jude's letter. Jude saw the intrusion of apostates, these false teachers, gaining ground in the church, and he knew he could not sit by as his readers slipped into error. Jude acted as a watchman for truth as much as Ezekiel had hundreds of years previous. His passionate desire for sound doctrine, especially for the gospel, caused his heart to be burdened for his readers, very similar to what Paul references in 2 Corinthians 8, where I am burdened for the churches. But Jude's heart is burdened for his readers because of these false teachers. He cared for his readers, and he wanted the best for their spiritual well-being. So he had to change his letter. And in, we see this in the second half of verse 3, where he gives his appeal. His appeal. Now, instead of writing about the doctrine of salvation, Jude makes his appeal. Now, the word that's used in the King James and New King James is translated as exhorting. It's the same word that Paul uses in Romans 12.1. I beseech you. It's the same, beseech is the same word that's used here. It's translated exhorting or appeal or urge. It's the idea of urge strongly, appealing to, to encourage. He is strongly urging his readers to contend for the faith. The, the idea of contending here is about exerting intense effort on behalf of something. And the nuance is about expending effort for a noble cause. I want to read to you, might not do all of this, I want to read to you the Medal of Honor citation for one Captain William Barber for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity, intrepidity of the, uh, at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty as commanding officer of Company F, 2nd Battalion, 7th Marines, 1st Marine Division reinforced, in action against enemy aggressor forces in Korea from 28 November to 2 December 1950. Assigned to defend a three-mile mountain pass along the division's main supply line and commanding the only route of approach in the march from Uramni to Hagaruri, which is kind of northwest to southeast, Captain Barber took his position with his battle-weary troops and before nightfall had dug in and set up a defense along the frozen, snow-covered hillside. When a force of estimated regimental strength savagely attacked during the night, inflicting heavy casualties and finally surrounding his position following a bitterly fought seven-hour conflict, Captain, Barber's, Captain Barber, after repulsing the enemy, gave assurance to, that he could hold if supplied by airdrops, and, um, and requested permission to stand fast when orders were received by radio to fight his way back to the relieving force. We can't reach you. You need to leave. No, we're going to stay. 
aware that leaving the position would sever, sever contact with the 8,000 Marines trapped in Udomni and jeopardize their chances of joining the 3,000 Marines waiting further south for the continued drive to the sea. He chose to risk loss of his command rather than sacrifice more men if the enemy seized control and forced a renewed battle to regain the position. Or abandon his many wounded who were unable to walk. He was severely wounded in the leg in the early morning of the 29th, but he continued to maintain personal control of his command, often moving up and down the lines on a stretcher, giving direct, uh, di give, directing defense and consistently encouraging and inspiring his men in supreme efforts despite the staggering opposition. Waging a battle for throughout five days and six, ni six nights of repeated onslaughts, he and his command accounted for approximately 1,000 enemy dead in the epic stand in bitter sub-zero weather, and when the company was relieved, only 82 of his original 220 men were able to walk away from the position valiantly defended against insuperable odds. His profound faith and courage and great personal value and unwavering fortitude were decisive factors in the successful withdrawal of his division from the death trap in the chosen reservoir sector and reflect the highest credit of Captain Barber, his officers, and the United States Naval Service. He and his command chose to stay and contend to hold that position. He wasn't going to retreat if he didn't have to. And even though he was ordered to, he said, no, we're staying. We need to hold this position. So as this Marine captain and his company contended for the holding of a pass to open to allow the withdrawal of a large Marine force further north, so these believers were to contend for the faith. Captain Barber had a noble cause. Keep the pass open so they can get out. These believers have a noble cause of contending for the faith. This faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What is this faith? This is the teaching that is the Christian faith. This is the objective truth of God, the truth of the gospel. Everything that pertains to the common salvation to which Jude intended to write about. This is the faith to which Acts 2.42 references, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. This faith is what Paul tells Timothy to guard and protect in 2 Timothy 1, 3-14. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. But why? What is the danger that Jude is appealing that they resist? And verse 4 gets, gets us there. The danger is found in verse 4. 
there were intruders, those that had crept in. The idea of this word crept in is that one would slip in stealthily or sneak in. These false teachers were not erring believers, brothers who were in error. These were not some from within the church that sought to alter the church. No, these were outsiders who were infiltrating local churches. They maybe said just enough that sounded right to gain entry. Maybe they came in as... Maybe they came in as a guest speaker for something. Maybe they said just enough to be allowed into the assembly as thought of to be a member. But as they began to teach, they began to distort the faith and they taught false doctrine. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says this, These apostles were not followers of Christ who had erred, but intruders who did not belong and who sought to wreck the believer's faith. These teachers were pretending to be true. They looked the part. They appeared to be genuine, but their intentions were to lead God's people astray. These were Satan's counterfeits. Likely, they were posing as itinerant teachers, just as the Apostle Paul and John warned about in 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15, and 2 John verses 7 through 11. The stealth of these teachers is what made them dangerous. Jude comments that these people were already marked or designated for condemnation. They were in the way of God's judgment. Jude says that they were designated long ago. Now this suggests that God had judged all apostates for all such true uh, excuse me that, that God had judged all apostates for all such true prophecies of condemnation or through all true prophecies of condemnation. This may refer to Old Testament prophecies such as Isaiah 8, uh, 19 to 22. It may refer to, it may be a reminder that Jesus is warned of false teachers and prophets in Matthew 7, verses 15 to 20. And most recently, Peter warned about false teachers arising in 2 Peter 2, verses 3 and 17, and chapter 3, verse 7. Jude calls these infiltrating false teachers ungodly. It's used in different places, irreverent, ungodly. It describes them, and he then describes them further, not just as ungodly, as acting contrary to what godliness would be, or acting contrary to what God would expect. But he expands it further with two characteristics. By perverting or corrupting God's grace and denying God's They first corrupted God's grace because they would claim liberty in Christ, but would then interpret God's grace as license to do whatever their flesh desired. Being unredeemed, being unbelievers, these intruders were controlled by the passions of their flesh. Then they would distort the biblical doctrine of grace and excuse their sinful lifestyles and behaviors. 
This is how they demonstrated they didn't truly come to Christ in repentance for redemption. Their actions are what is known as antinomianism. Anti-against or opposite nomas law. Okay? This is the belief that there is no moral law that God requires or expects of Christians. This is often seen as the opposite, it's almost an extreme opposite of legalism, where one must literally follow a very strict adherence to rules and regulations to be godly. Okay, those are kind of the outside extremes. But this type of thinking, Paul has dealt with in Romans 6. Romans 6, 1 to 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? All together now, God forbid. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him in baptism unto death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Further down in Romans 6, in verse 15, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. God forbid. And he expounds a little bit further through verse 18. Paul dealt with this line of thinking. This is wrong thinking when it comes to grace. But they don't only live and, and teach this antinomian lifestyle, but they deny Christ. Paul, Peter, and John all marked false teachers and ungodly men as denying God, denying Jesus. Titus 1 16, 2 Peter 2 1, 1 John 2 22. These are ungodly. These are they're denying the one who bought the master who bought them. They deny Jesus Christ. They're denying God. These intruders see themselves as their own masters and thus refuse to acknowledge Christ as the sovereign Lord. Now, the King James and New King James has a distinction by making the first title a reference to the Father. And, they, and deny our only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So the King James and New King James makes a distinction between the Father and the Son. However, the better manuscript evidence shows that the word God in this portion is not present making both titles descriptive of Jesus. If you want to impress your friends, this is the Granville Sharp Rule. Yes, Dad, I can see your question. This, uh, so thus the ESV would read, Deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I take this understanding. The terms do not point to different functions of Jesus, 
but both together focus on the lordship of Christ in the life of believers. The first word is despates. It's used here depicting Jesus as having a legal authority over subjects and thus is the master or a sovereign. This word is similar to the Hebrew word Adonai, which is often translated Lord with the lower with the, the capital L and lowercase O-R-D. The other word is the more commonly used word related to Jesus in the New Testament, kurios, and is often used in showing his divinity. And this word is often used in place of the Hebrew Yahweh. Now remember way back in verse 1 when I asked you to tuck that idea of master and slave back in your mind? Well, here's that circle back. Do you remember how Jude called himself a bondservant, a slave who saw Jesus as his master to whom Jude committed to serving, was solely committed to serving? He had made serving Jesus his priority. These apostates, these intruders, these unbelieving intruders into the local churches do the opposite. They deny the master and Lord Jesus Christ. One source rightly comments, it is always true of apostates, false teachers, and false religions that they pervert what Scripture declares is true about the Lord Jesus Christ. So what are we to do with all of this? What do we do with this information now? Well, we must be careful and diligent. We must know what the Word says. This is why we need multiple forms of Bible intake. We need to be studying and meditating on the Word. We need to sit under good teaching. We need to be reading and memorizing passages of Scripture. Because this helps us in, in starting to put together some theology and, and realizing the theology that comes, the true theology that comes out of the Word. So that we know God and know what he wants, and what good theology looks like. We need pastors, teachers, and other church leaders who have a good understanding of theology. Today, the, apost the apostasy Jew describes can take many forms. False teachers write books, edit publications, they speak at conferences, on radio and TV. They can teach in colleges and seminaries. They preach in pulpits. They have websites, blogs, and social media accounts. These are the tares of Satan and are sown among the wheat. And where he raises false brothers that are disguised as messengers of truth, just as he disguises himself as an angel of light. We must continue to hold to and insist upon and teach Saved church membership. This is why there is a need and why we do it. That there is a for those seeking membership, we have an interview where we talk to the the intended member. Do they truly know and profess the gospel? Have they been or going to be baptized? What is their testimony? How has God worked in their life? 
This is why many churches have a membership class that lays out their doctrinal statement. so we can continue to contend for the faith, to be diligent in what we have been given. Not always immediate, it's not always present, but it's important. Father, we thank you for the time we're able to look look into your word. The reminder of the truths of salvation, your calling, of your love that called us, of keeping us. Father, we thank you so much for those things. We thank you that your spirit prompted Jude to see the, the concern, the danger, and to write this letter, urging, urging the faith, urging your spirit to be watchful, to remember the truths of salvation, and to look for things that mark out those that would be false brethren. Help us to be diligent and discerning as we look at books, as we see others that, that are Bible teachers, so that we can choose the right ones. The ones that to a proper orthodox doctrine, the ones that have good theology that will benefit us so that we can continue in our walk as disciples, so that we can continue through this process of sanctification to be conformed to the image of Help us to remember these, these verses as we look Help us to dwell on the meaning this week. We pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.